So this is a very important day in America. And again, we, we hope that the, uh, everything stays safe, uh, that, that we exhibit you know, what we need to do for democracy and move forward with uh, the United States. So very happy uh, that, that this is occurring. But we're back to uh, academics and Grand Rounds. And uh, today we will have a, a very special session uh, with uh, three of our adolescent medicine specialists and, uh, and the work that they do. It will be introduced by Dr. Bennett, who's the head of the division. Um, and then she will introduce the two speakers today. Uh, we will learn a lot about uh, bleeding and uterine, uterine bleeding and disorders, things that are very, very important, sometimes very confusing to people. So this hopefully will be a session that is helpful to, to all of you. Uh, again, on Friday, we'll have John Schreiber once again, uh, and we, we will update, uh, give you an update on COVID-19, which is certainly uh, a major issue for us in our country. And uh, it's, it's unfortunately becoming a, a major problem. As you, you heard from the governor yesterday, we went back to reopening phase 2.1. I think I'm not exactly what the point one means, but it's uh, going back to trying to keep us safe. So please do follow those regulations, rules, and stay safe in your practices as you begin to go through the week and uh, the next two to three months before we have a vaccine. Uh, so with that, I'm going to ask, oh, just one reminder, there is uh, uh, a new link, uh, www.facebook.com groups, uh, and there's a number uh, which actually joins you to the Connecticut Children's CME group. Again, it's safe. Uh, please log in and you get lots of information. It's just another way of logging in. And uh, Liz Anderson asked me to remind everyone about this. I want to have her come up this time. I, get, I did it last week and she asked me not to do it again. So uh, maybe I will at some point. Uh, so again, thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Bennett, if you can come up and introduce your speakers, it'd be great. Elizabeth. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Um, I'm very excited for today's talk. Um, I was kind of joking with them this morning that I'm going to be in the back, like taking notes. I feel like every time we talk about bleeding disorders together, I learn something from these two women. Um, first, I'm going to introduce Amanda Zeus. She is uh, received her bachelor's at Vanderbilt University and then her RN and master's of nursing degree at Yale University School of Nursing. She joined Connecticut Children's in 2001, and she's been here pretty much the whole time. Um, she started out as a nurse practitioner on our inpatient unit um, on the Hemonc floor, and then um, in 2008, she worked in our Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders. Um, she took a brief hiatus um, for three years as a medical science liaison with Octopharma, and then fortunately uh, returned to the organization in 2017, where she's been the associate director for the Center for Bleeding and Clotting Disorders since then. Um, so Amanda is, has been, um, since I've been here, she's been our kind of go-to person when I have um, patients with bleeding disorders or concern for bleeding disorder. Um, she's been so incredibly helpful um, uh, managing these patients together. Um, and then joining Amanda is Dr. Jessica McCormick. Um, she received her bachelor's at SUNY of Geneseo and then med school was at New York College of Osteopathic Medicine. She completed both her pediatric residency and a chief residency year at the University of Rochester, followed by a fellowship in adolescent medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, she jokes that Pittsburgh has like warfarin in the water because she managed so many patients with bleeding disorders during fellowship. Fortunately, we're starting to see an increase in that at Connecticut Children, so um, to keep her busy. Um, she joined the Adolescent Medicine Division in the summer of 2018, which doubled our division. Um, and she has a special interest in youth transitioning from pediatric to adult health care. I'm also very excited to announce um, that our division has a third provider. Uh, Miranda Mitchell is a nurse practitioner who joined our division yesterday. Uh, so we're very happy to have her, and we now have three providers in adolescent medicine. So, um, so I hope you all sit back and enjoy. Um, you're going to learn a lot um, from our two presenters this morning. All right, thank you, everybody. Um, so we're going to start our talk about assessment and management of abnormal uterine bleeding in adolescents. Um, I have no conflicts of interest to disclose. Amanda Zeus is on the speaker bureaus for the CSL Bearing and Kedrion Biopharma. Our objectives today are to define abnormal uterine bleeding and what would constitute a reason for a referral to either hematology or adolescent medicine, understand common bleeding disorders and how to evaluate for them, and then demonstrate an understanding of management options for heavy menstrual bleeding in the context of a bleeding disorder. So first, I'm going to start out by reviewing what's normal. 
So this is a review of the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian access. Coordination of this access is needed for normal menstrual menstruation and control. Um, as you can see, the hypothalamus is supposed to send GnRH to the pituitary, which will send LH and FSH to the ovaries, and in response, they'll release progesterone and estrogen to coordinate the menstrual cycle normally. There's going to be negative feedback loops back to the pituitary um, to control the process. But as you might already know, HPO access immaturity is very common in adolescents and teens, especially within the first two to three years post-menarche. So that can create some normal problems um, that might not be suspicious for a bleeding disorder. And we're going to talk about how to differentiate that a little bit. And then just a quick review of the normal menstrual cycle. This slide um, figure has the um, hypothalamic um, pituitary ovarian access embedded in it. But with a little bit more detail here on the bottom parts of the slide, <clears throat> you can see that as FSH and LH start to rise, then estrogen is start to, gonna start to rise. That's gonna cause the follicular phase of the menstrual cycle where the endometrial lining is gonna thicken. And then the LH surge is gonna result in ovulation. And then after that, the corpus luteum forms. And then that's gonna maintain higher levels of progesterone until that egg doesn't end up being fertilized. And then eventually that withdrawal of progesterone is gonna to lead to withdrawal of the endometrial lining and therefore normal menses. As you can tell, this is very complicated. So it's very common for that HPO axis immaturity to cause anovulatory cycling. There's other things that can cause anovulatory cycling up the whole process. All right. So what is normal menstrual flow and pattern in adolescence? So the cycle length can vary anywhere from 21 to 45 days, a little bit you know, different than what you might think. It's not the typical 28 days. Menses length is about three to seven days. And then the typical would be changing pads or tampons up to every two hours in frequency with a total volume of 30 to 40 ml per cycle, which nobody really measures in real life, but that's what's been studied in um, you know, laboratory settings. So now let's talk about abnormal uterine bleeding or AUB. So that basically means an umbrella term of any menstrual bleeding that occurs outside the normal range. And that can include menses at irregular intervals. For adolescents, menstrual periods that are more frequently than every 21 days or less frequently than every 45 days, but excessive in duration or heavy, defined either subjectively as a volume of menstrual flow that interferes with quality of life um, or intermenstrual or breakthrough bleeding. And those old terms like menorrhagia or menometrorrhagia are kind of done by the wayside. They used to also call it DUB, not AUB, but AUB is basically meant to refer to all those things that are old terms. This is a review of the POM COIN acronym, um, which was created in 2011 by an international group um, of gynecologists to kind of characterize better what your differential might include when you're looking at abnormal uterine bleeding. And this is for all women. It's not for adolescents exclusively. So you can see the top part of the figure is referring to structural pathology. Um, that is really uncommon in adolescence as a cause for abnormal uterine bleeding. So we're gonna focus a little bit more on the bottom half. Um, ovulatory disorders are the most common thing that we're gonna see in adolescence, but sometimes these are diagnoses of exclusion, especially if it's HPO axis immaturity, that's pretty much a diagnosis of exclusion. So you have to rule out other things. So sometimes it could be PCOS, um, thyroid problems, prolactinoma, hypogonadotropic amenorrhea, um, you know, if someone has an energy imbalance, like with an eating disorder, um, lots of things can cause issues with anovulatory cycles. Um, but then we're going to focus our talk today more on coagulopathy as a possible cause for AUB and how to manage that. All right. So heavy menstrual bleeding or HMB, we're going to refer to a lot today. Um, things you want to think about when you're obtaining a history about this, when someone comes in with a complaint in your clinic. Um, is when was menarche and what was it like? Was it especially heavy? Because that would be abnormal, that would be a red flag. When was the onset of this heavy bleeding? Um, how long is menses lasting for? Number of pads or tampons per day. Also what size pads or tampons they're using. So if they tell you, I'm going through overnight pads every two hours, that's a little bit more abnormal than just a regular pad every two hours. Um, flooding, leaking, passing clots. I typically ask, are your clots bigger than an inch or bigger than a quarter? Um, Interference with activities of daily living. Occasionally, someone might have a horrible period and miss school, but that should not be the routine. So when I hear that, that it's so bad that they're missing school or missing out on things that they enjoy as a teenager, that's a red flag as well. That shouldn't be acceptable. Um, and then any history of previous treatments of pills not working or history of iron deficiency anemia that requires IV or oral iron replacement or even blood transfusions could also be a red flag. 
All right, now I'm going to transition it back over to Dr. Um, Amanda Zeus, who's going to go through um, more about heavy menstrual bleeding and coagulation disorders. Hi there, thank you so much for having me. Um, so first of all, um, in your office, if you're thinking about a patient who presents with heavy menstrual bleeding, um, we would like you to think about the following um, aspects of their past medical history and family history um, to determine whether or not you would consider a referral to hematology. Um, so you wanna think about the nature of the bleeding, which includes um, inciting factors, frequency, duration, and sort of complications that have come um, if they do have a history, a personal history of bleeding. You wanna ask about history of oral or nasal mucosal bleeding, um, easy bruising, especially bruising um, with hematomas that develop underneath, GI and intramuscular bleeding. Um, you also want to think about whether or not this patient has even had hemostatic challenges, if they've had surgeries or injuries or wounds that have um, uh, caused them to be in the emergency room. And finally, to think back to the newborn period, if there was any sort of incidence of bleeding at that time. That in combination with um, a good history, uh, both uh, family history and history of other um, uh, past medical history, you would want to think about. And then um, Screening labs can be very important and very helpful to us in hematology, especially um, if they're done uh, before the referral. Um, if you know, if you do, if you are willing to get screening labs, we would appreciate a CBC and a ferritin. Um, often, these young women are um, moderate, moderate to severely iron deficient, depending upon the degree of their heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, a PT/PTT are always great. Uh, factor eight activity of a Willebrand factor uh, antigen and activity um, are also quite helpful. Um, I may add a fibrinogen to this as well. Um, just to speak quickly to the von Willebrand factor antigen and activity, um, often when um, young women present with heavy menstrual bleeding, we'll need to, well, not me especially, but adolescent or the pediatrician uh, may need to start uh, estrogen uh, therapy quickly in order to stop their bleeding. And estrogen can falsely elevate von Willebrand factor labs. So um, if you can grab a set of uh, von Willebrand factor labs before estrogen is started, it's quite helpful to us. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a further slide. Um, so you know, the case for referral to hematology. So first of all, as we've mentioned, heavy menstrual bleeding can severely affect um, quality of life um, and both social aspects, uh, academic aspects, and professional aspects for young women. Um, and up to 20% of women with heavy menstrual bleeding could potentially have a coagulation disorder. Um, and often heavy menstrual bleeding is the first manifestation or first symptom of a bleeding disorder. Um, young women often present with bleeding disorders in adolescence, and they're also more likely to have gynecologic uh, bleeding manifestations such as corpus luteal bleeding, bleeding from ovarian cysts, and postpartum hemorrhage. So just to wrap up when to refer, um, any adolescent presenting with heavy menses in combination with a personal history of bleeding, a family history of bleeding, um, or presence of anemia or severe, moderate to severe iron deficiency anemia, we feel should um, be referred to hematology. So for the purpose of my talk, I will um, focus on the following bleeding disorders. Um, I will talk most in depth about von Willebrand disease because it is the most common bleeding disorder and because it's what we see the most in my clinic. Um, I'll touch on factor deficiencies, um, which are much more rare, and finally thrombocytopenia and rare platelet disorders at the end of my talk. Um, as we all know, von Willebrand disease is the most common bleeding disorder, and it affects males and females equally, um, up to about 1% of the population. Um, von Willebrand, the hallmarks of von Willebrand disease are mucocutaneous bleeding. So often our patients with BWD will present um, with histories of lots of epistaxis or oral bleeding. Um, parents will say, oh yeah, they're, um, they bled much more when they lost teeth than their brothers or sisters, or a dentist will comment on excessive bleeding with invasive dental work. Often these patients can have um, uh, easy bruising with hematomas that develop or just sort of unexplained bruising. They can have GI bleeding and as mentioned previously, heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, diagnosis of von Willebrand disease is quite complicated. Um, there's not one lab result that uh, determines a diagnosis of von Willebrand disease. Um, and often labs have to be repeated um, more than once in order to make the determination of von Willebrand disease and then to determine the subtype of von Willebrand disease the patient has. 
Um, so, and in combination with family and personal history of bleeding. So we sort of use all of that data to make the diagnosis of von Willebrand disease. Um, von Willebrand disease is further complicated because it can be either a quantitative deficiency of von Willebrand factors or a qualitative deficiency of von Willebrand factors. And I'll talk about that in um, a further slide. So von Willebrand test accuracy. So there's lots of variables that affect the lab results in von Willebrand disease. Um, most factors cause um, elevations of von Willebrand factor, um, but in one instance, which I'll talk about first, is patients with type O blood. Um, patients with type O blood can actually have normal von Willebrand levels that are 25% lower um, than other patients with different blood types. So for example, we'll get referrals um, for patients who are screened prior to surgery. Um, patients um, come to us with simply lower von Willebrand labs. So von Willebrand factor activities um, and antigens in the 40s or high 30s. Um, and when we see that patient and determine um, and talk about their history and their family history, on occasion, we'll find that those patients have no personal history of bleeding and no family history of bleeding. And so at that point, we may um, send a blood type. And if the patient does in, um, have type O blood, we would consider not assigning them a diagnosis of von Willebrand disease. Um, the other examples of when von Willebrand factor can be falsely elevated are in after um, exercise or when a patient is stressed or anxious. Um, my von Willebrand levels would probably be quite high <laughs> right now <laughs> because of this talk and because of the election. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, often even just the stress of a blood draw um, can cause a patient's von Willebrand levels to um, rise and um, be released from the endothelial cells. And then it would, on paper, would look like the patient actually does not have von Willebrand disease. Um, in instances of inflammation, both acute and chronic, or infection, um, von Willebrand levels can be falsely elevated. And finally, in estrogen, um, when patients are on estrogen or pregnant. So that's my case for um, trying to grab these labs before a patient is actually placed on estrogen therapy um, in order to quell their menstrual bleeding, um, is to try to grab those labs first. Um, in pregnancy, uh, women who have von Willebrand disease often have normal levels during pregnancy. Um, then those levels can fall uh, quickly after the baby is born, and women with von Willebrand disease tend to have um, the most trouble with postpartum hemorrhage after those estrogen levels have fallen and their von Willebrand factors go back to normal. Um, so just to speak a little bit about how important von Willebrand factor is, and um, von Willebrand factor actually um, functions in both primary and secondary hemostasis. So to take you back to medical or nursing school, um, von Willebrand factors, um, when injury happens to the vessel wall, van, von Willebrand factor is released from the endothelial cells and it actually recruits platelets to the site of injury, um, enabling that platelet um, plug to form at the site of injury. So that's primary hemostasis. In secondary hemostasis, um, von Willebrand factor is integral in protecting um, factor eight and keeping it in circulation longer. It actually extends the half-life of factor eight from about four hours to 12 hours. So von Willebrand factor keeps that factor eight in circulation and helps deliver it to the site of the platelet plug um, in order for factor eight to do its job, which is to convert fibrinogen to fibrin to um, establish that fibrin net over the clot. So this slide is um, just to illustrate all of the different types of von Willebrand disease. Um, and they're actually not even all here. There's um, one called type 1C that I didn't add and sort of getting into the weeds of von Willebrand disease. But what this is really showing you is that um, the majority of patients with von Willebrand disease have type 1 von Willebrand disease. Um, that comprises about 60 to 80% of cases. Um, this is a quantitative deficiency and um, significantly easier to treat um, than some of the qual uh, qualitative uh, forms of von Willebrand disease. Um, there's several types of type 2 von Willebrand disease, um, comprising about 10 to 30% of all of the VWD cases. Um, and these are some sort of defect within the von Willebrand factor protein, causing it um, to be ineffective in um, platelet binding and protecting factor 8. And finally, there's type 3. And type 3 is actually um, quite rare. We see it only in about 1 to 5% of our patients with von Willebrand disease. 
Um, and it is a complete absence of umbilibrant factor, which also means um, a complete uh, or almost complete absence of factor eight. Um, these patients tend to look much more like a severe hemophilia patient and often present much earlier than um, when than menarche because um, you know they tend to have joint and muscle bleeds and can often be bit misdiagnosed as a hemophilia patient because of their low factor eight levels. Um, now, this next slide um, goes into some of the labs that we look at in order to not only determine, uh, yes, this patient does have umbilibrand disease, but also to determine the subtype of umbilibrand disease. Um, not only do we look at the umbilibrand factor antigen, which is the actual amount of umbilibrand factor protein, we look at the ristocetin cofactor, which is a functional um, measure of how well the umbilibrand factor protein works in the blood. Um, we look at factor eights. Um, and we look at the ratio of the ristocetin cofactor to the vomilibrant factor antigens. Um, and then finally, we send um, something called vomilibrant factor multimers, where we actually look at the structure of the protein. And there are other labs that we'll send, including vomilibrant factor collagen binding, to assess um, sort of the function and how well the vomilibrant factor is working. So in terms of treatment, like I said, patients with type 1 um, vomilibrant factor, vomilibrant disease uh, are much easier to treat because uh, most of them respond to desmopressin. Uh, desmopressin is a synthetic hormone that stimulates the release of vomilibrant factor from the endothelium. So basically, when a patient is given um, desmopressin, their vomilibrant factors can double or triple um, in circulation. Often when we're considering using desmopressin for a patient, we do in our clinic what we call a DDAVP challenge, um, where we give a dose of desmopressin and then we measure von Willebrand factor levels at one, two, and four hours to make sure that they have an adequate and sustained response. So that lets us know that it's safe to use von Willebrand, uh, safe to use desmopressin um, in surgeries or um, for other bleeding episodes. Um, there are two forms of desmopressin. Um, there is an IV form, so we use a lot of desmopressin um, pre-op, and then there's a nasal spray form, which is really a godsend um, because that enables patients to use it at home. Um, unfortunately, right now, the nasal spray form is um, on, it's been rec recalled, and it's unavailable through potentially uh, 2021. Um, so uh, we're seeing a lot more of our vulnerable patients. Um, we're getting a lot more calls and a lot more patients in clinic um, who need sort of a rescue with IBDDABP. Um, in terms of heavy menstrual bleeding, um, when we do have stymate available, we will recommend that our patients use stymate on day one and day three of their periods. And often um, women uh, report that this does significantly decrease um, the amount of uh, blood loss during their periods. Um, finally, for as good as DDAVP is and for as easy as it is to use when um, the nasal spray form is available, it does have some drawbacks. Um, it can cause increased water retention and therefore SIADH, um, and that can um, be quite dangerous if you're prescribing it for um, patients who are athletes or, you know, doing um, you know, major outdoor activities in the summertime. Um, so we have to really caution our patients to um, sort of uh, decrease the amount of fluid they take within 24 hours of using DDAVP. And for that reason, we do not use um, desmopressin, but desmopressin in children under two. So after um, desmopressin, the other um, tools we have in our arsenal are factor replacement um, and antifibrinolytics. Factor replacement is sort of self-explanatory. If a patient um, does not respond to DDAVP or if they have a type of von Willebrand where DDAVP is contraindicated, like type 2B or type 3, um, we're sort of... Um, have to use factor replacement to treat episodes of bleeding and sometimes prophylaxis. Um, there's two types of... Um, factor replacement, plasma-derived and recombinant. Um, currently, plasma-derived factor is the only one approved in pediatrics. About 20% of patients with omelibrand disease will actually need factor replacement sometime during their lifetime. Um, when we use it, our goal is to increase their von Willebrand factor levels to above 100% and to maintain a trough of 50% in surgical situations or situations where they're bleeding. Um, finally, um, touch on antifibrinolytics. These um, antifibrinolytics can be quite helpful. Um, the, they prevent normal lysis of the fiber mesh um, by binding to plasminogen. Um, we have two antifibrinolytics that we use frequently in our clinic, uh, aminocoproic acid or amicar and tranic 
tranexamic acid or Listeta. Um, we, tranexamic acid is actually approved in women with heavy menstrual bleeding and those, it does not have to be women who have a bleeding disorder. Um, for those young women uh, who, who like to use this medication, um, we generally recommend that they use two tabs three times daily on days one through five of their period. Um, the downside of tranexamic acid and aminocoproic acid are GI upset, and often um, it's hard to remember to take a medication three times a day. And unfortunately, um, Amicar or aminocoproic acid, you have to take four times a day. So um, these can be a little cumbersome for uh, busy young women who um, don't want to be bothered with um, taking a medicine three or four times a day. So next I'll touch on um, factor deficiencies. Um, so he, as we all know, hemophilia A and B are X-linked recessive disorders that predominantly affect males, um, but women who are carriers um, can actually be symptomatic and have hemophilia. We um, tend to, they tend to fall into the mild hemophilia category and they can be quite symptomatic and experience um, a lot of different bleeding episodes, including heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, it is possible for women to have severe hemophilia um, in sort of extreme genetic situations listed here. Um, and then we also have patients with um, rare factor deficiencies. Often these are rare autosomal recessive defi uh, deficiencies. Um, and we have patients with all of the following factor deficiencies in our clinic. Um, they range from mild to severe, um, and we... Uh, they can be quite challenging to treat um, in certain situations. So in terms of treatment for rare factor deficiencies, um, in terms of hemophilia A and B, um, for hemophilia A, we can use desmopressin um, because not only does it increase Mott-Willebrand factor levels, but it raises the factor eight level as well. Um, so this is effective just for patients with factor eight deficiency. We'll often conduct the DDAVP challenge I mentioned earlier, just to see um, how good of a response they have to DDAVP. And often we will use this um, on days one and three of their uh, periods to help slow down bleeding. Um, factor replacement is always an option if patients have low enough factor levels, um, and, as well as antifibrinolytics and hormonal therapy. Um, and finally, with our rare factor deficiencies, in some cases, there are factor products um, on the market to replace just the factor that's deficient. Um, but in other cases, we have to use fresh frozen plasma. Um, we also are very reliant upon antifibrinolytics and hormonal therapy as well. And this is where the relationship between my clinic and our adolescent clinic um, really comes into play. We are sort of back and forth all the time with these patients um, in order to um, manage and to um, improve the quality of life for these young women with such heavy menstrual bleeding. And finally, I'll just touch on platelet function disorders um, in the interest of time. Uh, we see patients in our clinic with thrombocytopenia and then many other um, platelet function problems. Um, some of the more common ones are Bernard-Soulier syndrome, Glanzmann's thrombosthenia, excuse me, and storage pool deficiencies. Um, these patients can be tricky because in screening labs, they could look totally normal. Um, a CBC can look normal. Um, on occasion, a peripheral smear will give you a clue um, that they may have some abnormal looking platelets or the um, granules could potentially look un unusual on peripheral smear. But really the gold standard for um for diagnosing some of these platelet function disorders is platelet aggregation studies. Um, so when we see a patient who has normal um, screening labs, but they really have a strong history, personal history or family history of bleeding, especially mucocutaneous bleeding, we will often send them to our lab at UConn. They have a special coagulation lab where they will conduct these platelet aggregation studies. Um, this is a, just a quick algorithm for how we sort of think about diagnosing platelet function disorders. Um, I won't go into detail about this, but um, we sort of categorize um, these patients um, in two ways. We look at um, is their platelet count low versus is their platelet count normal and then sort of go from there. <clears throat> And finally, in terms of treatment, um, the you know first of all, we we do um, recommend to all of our bleeding disorder patients that they avoid um, any antiplatelet uh, products, so NSAIDs and aspirin. Um, there are other medications on the list, um, including um, 
SSRIs um, and some supplements such as melatonin and fish oil that have been implicated in easy bleeding. Um, with SSRIs especially, we sort of weigh the risk benefit um, and often patients will, um, you know, the benefit of the SSRI will outweigh maybe a little bit more bruising or bleeding that they may have while taking it. Um, desmopressin and recombinant factor 7A are off-label uses in platelet disorders. Uh, um, and then we do often um, use hormonal therapy and antifibrinolytics um, to help manage heavy menstrual bleeding um, with these patients. On occasion, in a very, in one of the more rare, uh, some of the more rare platelet function disorders, um, we will have to resort to platelet transfusion. Um, we've had to do this several times with a few of our patients who have um, sort of stopped taking their hormonal therapy um, unbeknownst to us and they'll come in, you know, hemorrhaging and then we're sort of forced to transfuse them until we can sort of get them back on track with their hormonal, hormonal therapy. Um, but I can't stress enough um, the um, collegiality between our department and adolescent and how lucky we are to have them at our disposal. Um, I feel like we interact daily, so, <laughs> or almost. So um, again, we're so grateful and I'm just very grateful for being a part of this talk. I'm going to turn it back over to Dr. McCormick now to talk about the hormonal management. Thank you. All right, so I'm going to review um, this algorithm from where I trained for fellowship. Um, I adapted this, and I think this will be one of the most helpful things for you guys in the audience, um, determining how you manage um, abnormal uterine bleeding based on severity. So these are the things that we're going to look at. Um, your hemoglobin level of the patient, the rate of the flow, defining rapid bleeding as saturating a pad per hour repeatedly, especially if it's a super or overnight pad. Um, and then the hemodynamic stability of the patient, and then also their reliability to follow up. Um, so severe bleeding would be hemoglobin less than seven or that rapid bleeding, or if they're hemodynamically unstable, this is the patient you're gonna be sending to the ED and probable hospital admission. And I'll go through a little bit about managing them in a future slide. If they have heavy bleeding, but it's not rapid, their hemoglobin is between seven and 10, so certainly low, you wanna acutely stop the bleeding, we would recommend a combined hormonal OCP taper um, starting Q8 hours until the bleeding stops, then Q12 for three days, and then daily, plus the addition of ferrous sulfate for iron. Um, your birth control pill choices, my top two are Sprintec, which has a 35 microgram of final estradiol component, so a higher estrogen component or low ogestrel, which is also um, the generic is Crisel um, or low overall. Those are all the same if you've heard of those before. That has 30 micrograms of estrogen or ethyl estradiol um, and the progestin component is a little bit more stabling. So those are my top two go-tos. So you don't need to know, there's like hundreds of types of birth controls out there. Um, the pills that are my go-to for this issue are those two. Um, if they have moderate bleeding, so their hemoglobin might be 10 to 12, they're not rapidly bleeding, hemodynamically stable, um, then your taper could be Q12 until the bleeding stops and then daily with um, ferrous sulfate. And then if their bleeding is mild where their hemoglobin is normal, no rapid bleeding, but it's bothersome, there's the option of starting a daily OCP, um, but you might not need to do that. We can talk a little bit more about that in a future slide. You want to instruct the patient to skip the placebo pills at the bottom of the pack that are those non-active non-hormone pills. If you're tapering Q12 or Q8 level, thinking about Zofran as an anti-emetic um, for symptoms of nausea with higher estrogen doses. Um, and then certainly calling us in adolescent medicine or gynecology and hematology. If estrogen is contraindicated, please contact us in adolescent medicine. We can guide you with progesterone-only alternatives. For severe AUB management, so if the patient's in the ED, their hemoglobin's low, they're unstable, um, they're probably gonna get a type and cross, they're probably gonna get PRBC transfusion. This is the kind of kid that's gonna get hospitalized um, with a frequent taper of pills every six hours. We try oral therapy as a primary, but sometimes we need to give IV estrogen, which is in the form of Premarin, and you kind of give one dose at a time and reassess the bleeding you know, frequently. Um, up to every four hours, you can give it until the bleeding stops and then switching quickly to an oral taper. Again, needing an anti-emetic as a PRN. You can instruct um, the nursing staff to track the bleeding by weighing the pads to get an objective measurement because obviously heavy menses can be quite subjective in um, understanding what's going on, but that's an objective way to track it. And then obviously involving hematology, adolescent medicine or gynecology, and then considering other things like the anti that Amanda spoke of earlier. 
And that, by the way, was for AUB without a bleeding disorder. That could be anybody. So it could be the patient with PCOS that had a novulatory cycling for a really long time, had amenorrhea for months, and then all of a sudden has acute heavy menses and their hemoglobin drops because all of this estrogen build up over time. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about how that could happen in a future slide as well. Um, I think of also acute versus chronic management of AUB. So acute is kind of like active heavy bleeding, needing control, especially if your hemoglobin is lower than 10 using that protocol on that former slide I just showed you. And then there's more chronic bothersome bleeding, but maybe not significantly anemic, or they might be kind of step, you know, chronically anemic over time and not um, hemodynamically unstable. Um, and so those are kind of just ways to kind of think about them in your mind when you're thinking about management as well. So now we're gonna go through some basics of hormonal and contraceptive options to manage AUB. And again, this is not just exclusive to girls with bleeding disorders, this could be anybody. Um, so I wanted to kind of go over the role of estrogen and progesterone in the endometrial lining and how they work. I think of them as constituting a brick wall. If your endometrial lining was a brick wall, I think of estrogen as the bricks of the wall that builds up that lining. And then progesterone maintains the stability. So we think of this as the mortar of the brick wall. When you have normal menstrual flow, that's going to be your wall is demolished with that progesterone withdrawal. Um, so if you think of that analogy, it keeps a little bit simpler so you don't have to think about all the craziness of the menstrual cycle. Um, AUB is gonna lead to heavy menstrual bleeding when a crumbling or unstable brick wall occurs. So progesterone withdrawal is supposed to do that, right? That's what's gonna cause menses or removing the mortar. But then, like I mentioned earlier, in cases of PCOS or anovulatory cycling, you can get unopposed estrogen that leads to this wall of the endometrial lining building up, just the bricks, without the support of the progesterone or the mortar. Because the, um, without ovulation, the uterus never gets the right signals to make the hormones coordinate accordingly to support the wall. So like I said, this is very common in anovulatory cycling. So regardless of whether they have a bleeding disorder or not, this can happen, and this is what can cause abnormal bleeding in HPO axis immaturity or cases of PCOS or what have you. So when you're thinking generally about how to manage heavy menstrual bleeding, you have a few options. So you can either regulate the amount of estrogen and progesterone in combination with a combined hormonal contraceptive or a birth control pill. You can think about just progesterone only options if you wanna thin that lining but stabilize it, or maybe induce amenorrhea. Um, and then sometimes what we do, if the patient's not anemic and they're having, you know, not a great response to pills and they're just bleeding and bleeding, sometimes we demolish the wall intentionally. So we induce a withdrawal bleed to reset that uterine lining and build the wall back up in a more supportive structure. Um, management options can vary greatly and some of it's a little bit of trial by error. Um, and there's a lot of different styles based on people's clinical experiences. Even where I trained in fellowship, all the attendings that were my mentors had all different things they wanted to do. Um, there was actually a systematic review that looked at different options for management and there were very few studies that really compared options adequately so they couldn't make even a conclusion about the preferred treatment plan. Um, so my protocol that I gave you earlier from the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh was a suggestion, but obviously you can tailor it accordingly. Um, so I'm going to quickly highlight some things about some of the methods we would use. So combined hormonal contraceptive methods include estrogen and as well as progesterone components. That's your birth control pill, patch, or the vaginal ring. Um, they're going to contain estradiol or estrogen in varying doses, um, 20 to 35 micrograms. For girls with heavy menstrual bleeding, like I said, we tend to go on the higher side of that um, range. Um, and then there's different progestin derivatives that are more preferred. So I'll go through that in a future slide. There's a lot of contraindications to these methods. Migraines with aura is one of the most common ones we're gonna pick up in an adolescent. Um, usual, usually they're otherwise young and healthy, so we don't think about so much risk of blood clots or the impact of other medical conditions. But if you have a family history or um, you know, patient has a propensity to have a blood clot, this would be something you would need to avoid. And there's other issues. So a lot of medication interactions, a lot of trouble with teens consistently taking pills. Um, on, you know, routinely, it's really important that they take it at the same time daily consistently or else they could get breakthrough bleeding that could be bothersome, especially if they have a bleeding disorder, that's not ideal. Um, they're still gonna get a monthly withdrawal bleed if they take it as the pack um, is prescribed. Um, like I mentioned, there's different choices for um, pills and there's um, more control in having a pill versus a patch for, or a ring if you're worried about heavy menses, especially in a young woman with a bleeding disorder, because you can taper it and you have more control than a patch. You can't taper that or change the dose. Um, we recommend using monophasic pills, not triphasic. So things like orthotri, cyclin low, anything with tri in the name, you can't taper that because each week of the pill pack has a different dose of hormone. 
um, and that can cause to, that can cause breakthrough bleeding. The progesterone component can matter a little bit. Um, so certain progestins are a little bit more stabilizing. Um, and then the higher estrogen pills, like I said, are a better choice. And here are some examples pictured here. If estrogen is contraindicated, the alternatives are things like agestin, which is norethindrone acetate, or Provera, which is medroxyprogesterone. But please call us in adolescent medicine. We can help you um, with that because that's a little bit tricky. Um, then we sometimes choose progesterone-only methods for girls with um, AUB, especially in the setting of the bleeding disorder or not. Um, again, if estrogen is contraindicated, you can't use estrogen. Here's an option. The good thing about Depo-Provera is that periods are going to get lighter significantly over time. Um, by one year of use, about 50% or more have amenorrhea. So I've had patients with von Willebrand disease who tried multiple types of birth control pills with different ways to taper it or whatever, didn't have great improvement of their quality in life uh, of you know, their heavy flow as much as they had desired. Um, so they switched to depot to try to induce amenorrhea. Um, obviously, this you can't taper this. This is for more chronic management. It's not going to help you in acute management of heavy bleeding. There's concerns about long-term use and decreasing bone mineralization. Um, and then obviously affords less control for the patient. They have to go see a healthcare provider every three months. There's other side effects that we worry about. Breakthrough bleeding is really common in the beginning of use, but significantly lessens with each subsequent shot. The next option I wanted to highlight here was the progestin-only IUD or hormone IUD, particularly Mirena. Um, it's actually been FDA approved to treat heavy menstrual bleeding as well as using it as a contraceptive. So if you have a patient who has multiple goals in mind, and by the way, all of these methods, there should be some shared decision-making that goes into what you decide with the patient and or their caregiver. Um, because if contraception is one of their goals, as well as control of heavy menses and a bleeding disorder, the IUD is one of the best choices you could make. Um, it's more than 99% effective against pregnancy, but it also really helps to lessen bleeding. It's also going to lessen cramps. Um, some women have no bleeding after continued use, with Mirena especially. Um, and the hormone's not systemically absorbed, so we worry less about, you know, systemic side effects. We worry less about meta-interactions. Um, obviously, it's going to require a pelvic exam and a procedure with a trained provider. Um, we do this in adolescent medicine, so, you know, we're happy to take those referrals or gynecology. Um, and then additionally, you know, some people have some breakthrough bleeding or cramping in the beginning, but that significantly lessens over time as well. I just wanted to highlight some things about um, Mirena in particular. Studies have shown that it reduces blood loss by 80% after three months in place, and then more than 90%, 95% reduced at six months. And other IUDs on the market um, have a little bit less hormone over time, so there's a little bit more of a risk of bleeding, but potentially those could be options as well if the patient wanted to have one of those for some reason. And then I'm going to go through a couple less favorable options. So the progestin-only pill, especially in somebody with a bleeding disorder, is not my favorite because spotting and breakthrough bleeding are very common and bleeding is often unpredictable and irregular, which is not ideal in somebody that has a bleeding disorder who we know is going to bleed more easily in the first place. Um, they can have medication interactions um, and they can have, you know, other um, problems with this, other side effects. Um, but otherwise, they work the same way as other progesterone things. They're going to thin the endometrial lining, um, and they're going to suppress ovulation too, so they are a birth control method as well. You have to be very diligent about taking this at the same time every day, which is really hard for a teenager. Um, even being off by an hour or two can cause breakthrough bleeding. Again, not ideal in someone with a bleeding disorder. Um, with all these progestin-only methods, you don't have to worry about that risk of blood clots. So if somebody really wants a pill option, they don't want one of those other more invasive options, I guess, of the injection or an IUD or whatever, this could be your way to go. And then finally, the next one on implant, it's great for contraception. We totally support the use of it in teens. But if somebody has a known bleeding disorder, it's probably my least favorite because up to a third of women have unpredictable breakthrough bleeding that doesn't necessarily improve over continued use like the other methods. It may, but it might not. And so it's not ideal. But certainly we've had patients that do have von Willebrands that I coordinate with Amanda Zeus in hematology. Mm -hmm. And we kind of come up with a plan for this patient to make sure we minimize any bleeding during the procedure. Um, and any risk of bleeding in the future. So I have used this. Again, it's a shared decision-making with the patient where they really want Nexplanon for maybe contraceptive purposes as well as to reduce their bleeding and cramps. So it's definitely an option. It's just not my favorite. All right, so finally, we're going to go through a case example, um, and then we're going to give you some resources at, quickly at the end to help you out. So we have a 13-year-old female who presents to your clinic with heavy menstrual bleeding for two weeks. This is her second period since menarche. Menarche was heavy, but not as much, but lasted more than seven days. 
She notes lard clots and flooding onto the bed sheets despite use of overnight pads, and she's now saturating overnight pads every one to two hours in your clinic right now. She has no symptoms of anemia or hirsutism or acne. She has some fatigue, but no shortness of breath or dizziness. No significant past medical or surgical history. Her family history is negative, although the mom notes her periods are heavy. And this can be something we'll hear often when we're getting a history that the, the parent goes through their own menstrual history as they're giving us their child's menstrual history. And it's, it's hard because a lot of, for a lot of women in their families, this is a taboo topic that nobody really talks about. And so sometimes bleeding disorders like von Willebrand's can get missed, I think, because of that. Um, in your clinic on exam, she's um, vital signs are stable, exam is normal, we check a GU exam externally, which is a good idea if they're actively heavy, heavily bleeding to determine how bad is the flow right now. It gives you another objective sense of how bad it is, because again, it's very subjective when they describe heavy bleeding. So let's say blood is present, but it's not gushing. Um, her point of care hemoglobin in your office is 10.5, and then you do further labs, which are shown here. As you can see, she does have anemia at a hemoglobin of 10. Um, her PTT is a little bit prolonged, her MCV is a little low, and her von Willebrand studies, as you can see there, are all on the low side, so definitely abnormal. And obviously these levels were obtained before hormonal management. As Amanda mentioned, estrogen therapy with birth control pills or what have you can increase those factors um, and those levels in the labs. And that actually can persist for three months after you stop them. So after you stop the estrogen. So it's something really important to do if you're considering a workup to do it early. And so my approach to this case, if this provider called us in adolescent medicine, which I would recommend, we could say, if you're actively bleeding and you have anemia, you wanna start the hormone therapy to promptly stop bleeding. As we've talked about, you have a lot of options, but if you were gonna you know, make sure they have no contraindications to estrogen, you're gonna do a birth control pill taper with no placebo pills in the pack until that hemoglobin returns to normal. So um, OCPQ12 until the bleeding stops, then daily. If they're not an estrogen candidate, we would you know, talk about using Provera or Agestin, as I mentioned, and we could tell you how to taper those and how to monitor. This is the kind of kid you're gonna want one of your nursing staff to check in on, make sure you give them clear instructions about the bleeding should significantly reduce you know, 24 hours after starting the taper. And if the bleeding gets to be excessive, then that's a reason to call the on-call person or go to the ER. Um, they're obviously gonna need iron replacement and if they weren't anemic, again, you could opt to have a withdrawal bleed to reset that lining and then start the pill pack. Sometimes that's what we need to do rather than chasing the breakthrough bleeding. But in this case, this girl was anemic, so we wanna help her out. Um, I'm gonna transition it back to Amanda really quick and then we'll finish up. So just to further um, the lab results, um, when this patient came to us, we checked von Willebrand factor multimers, um, which showed sort of a normal structure of the von Willebrand factor protein and looked at a collagen binding assay, which was normal at 56%. So this patient sort of nicely falls into the category of type one von Willebrand disease um, and making it hopefully easier to treat. Um, we would conduct, uh, as previously mentioned, the DDAVP challenge um, and consider using a combination of DDAVP and um, tranexamic acid for this patient um, in combination with their horm hormonal therapy. Do you wanna come back? Okay. All right, so we just wanted to quickly highlight some resources that we recommend for patients. So for anybody, again, regardless if they have a bleeding disorder, there's some really great apps that teens like to use to track menses. Clue Period Tracker and Flow Period Tracker are some popular ones that I've seen my patients use. And these are super helpful to me as well as their clinician because they'll literally hand me their phone and be like, oh, here's my menstrual history right here. And I'm like, great. And I just scroll through their phone and I see it on the calendar. Um, they, can, they can literally mark you know, what symptoms they had during their period, when it started, how bad the flow was. Um, so those are really helpful apps and teens tend to really like them and think that they're cool and like share them with their friends. So you can totally promote that. It'll be, it'll be a great option for them and it also helps them keep track of it and know when to predict their period too. Um, other resources for clinicians. So um, at Connecticut Children's, they recently got a um, grant funded center for bleeding and cladding disorders. Um, and then I know Amanda wanted to mention some of these other resources and in a future slide, I'm gonna go through just some apps about following the medical eligibility criteria for choosing a contraceptive. So let me just turn it back over to Amanda and then we'll continue on with those other apps. 
So at Connecticut Children's, um, we are proud to have a federal designation as a hemophilia treatment center. Um, not only does this um, include patients with hemophilia, but all bleeding and clotting disorders. Um, I work with three expert physicians, a nurse practitioner, a nurse, social work, and a social worker in my clinic to provide comprehensive care for all of our patients with bleeding and clotting disorders. Um, we have lots of resources to help these patients and families. Um, we're quite proud of this program, um, and we feel like it's growing in leaps and bounds. We're hoping to at some point have combined clinics with adolescent medicine. They also, we also provide access to um, dental care, ear, nose, and throat, and any other um, subspecialty um, areas where our patients um, may need to be seen. Um, in terms of online resources, I find um, hemophilia.org is an excellent resource for both patients and um, clinicians, and also the Foundation for Women and Girls with Blood Disorders, um, again, for both patients and um, clinicians. And I'll turn it back over to Jessica. All right, and so I just want to highlight a couple of other resources for you as clinicians. Um, this is an app um, developed by the CDC to help guide um, contraceptive management. Um, so if you search in your app store for CDC MEC contraception, you'll find it. Um, here's just an example of some screenshots from the app where you can literally search by condition or search by the contraceptive method and look at the pros and cons um, or why it might be contraindicated with the medical condition. So for an example, um, this is a patient with insulin-dependent diabetes, um, and you can see that they're basically a candidate for any of the options that I mentioned earlier. Um, they have a risk stratification um, guideline here that goes from one to four. Basically, four is an unacceptable risk, so it's an absolute contraindication. So things like um, with combined hormonal contraception that contain estrogen, if there's risk of blood clots or migraine with aura, that's, a, that's considered a four. Um, but in general, most of these issues are not um, a problem. So you know, even condition three is where the risk may outweigh the benefits, but again, it's a shared decision-making discussion with the patient and what's gonna work best for them. And it, it depends on whether you're using it for pregnancy, which the risk of DVT or something else might be more substantial than the contraceptive itself versus heavy menstrual bleeding in the setting of anemia, things like that. So you have to weigh the pros and cons, but this is a guideline to help you. It's a free app. And then here are references and we are open for questions. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for a truly, truly outstanding presentation. So uh, I'm, I have a, a number of questions from the audience. So if you both could get close, appropriately distanced with the masks on. So we follow the, uh, the, the strict Fauci protocols here. Uh, I want to uh, first uh, welcome uh, 170, actually 185 participants. So we, that was how many we had. That's pretty good. So congratulations. A lot of interest in this topic. And uh, it, again, we don't, uh, we haven't met in a while as a, as a team in, uh, in our old auditorium, but I just want to call out John Pitagoff, hello. Leon Kamaitis, hello. Nina Livingston, hello. Sue Ratson, we miss uh, your presence, uh, but I know you're here. Uh, Tom Framson, always uh, great to see the elegant gentleman who comes to Grand Rounds and ask great, great questions, and Kathy Wiley. And I'm only naming a few of the 185, but just wanted to recognize that you're there. Um, now let's go to the questions. We have, uh, the first one is, uh, Amanda, this will be for you. Uh, is, the, is there DNA testing available for uh, uh, von Willebrand's and, and that could help to get it to a diagnosis faster than just a biochemical testing? That's a great question. Um, we are able to send um, DNA testing in certain instances, um, and we actually do have access. We have a genetic counselor in our clinic who's available to meet with all of our bleeding disorder patients, and we work very closely with her to um, make the determination um, of when to send genetic testing, and then also um, we always have to check to make sure it will get paid for before it's sent, which is one of our big, biggest obstacles because oftentimes um, insurance companies are not willing to pay for genetic testing. Um, I'd say a small percentage of patients um, at this point we're sending genetic testing on. But it's not part of the newborn testing uh, no, at this point? No, no, there's no newborn screening for bleeding It disorders. would seem that it should be given that it's such a high percentage in the population, right? Well, unfortunately, um, in newborn babies, von Willebrand levels can actually be higher so if you were screening just levels, you wouldn't see it. Right. And genetic testing, I'm not sure that the, um, the uh, expense of sending uh, genetic testing um, would uh, outweigh okay. you know, the cost. Uh, Dr. McCormick's for you. Uh, this is from Dr. Bloomer. He says, I've always understood that for the first two years, menses can be grossly abnormal. 
and can go from very uh, every several months to two to three times a month. Uh, bleeding can be from very little to very heavy. Can you comment on that? So absolutely, like I said, that's a sign of the HPO axis being immature. And so there's some degree of irregularity that we expect and reassure the patient about. But if it's getting to the point where they're missing school or the menses is so heavy that it's implicating issues in their quality of life or causing anemia, despite that knowledge that it could be within the normal range of what's expected in terms of a pattern, that's still you know, an unacceptable you know, risk in their health, right? So we don't want them missing school. We don't want them to become anemia and just accept it. So um, that's when we would intervene to help manage this. If you stay there, um, and for the, Dr. Welch from the ED, uh, who should be the admitting service for these patients that require admission? Uh, I guess it would be uh, uh, hospital medicine, uh, hematology, uh, or adolescent medicine. So that's a great question. Right now, adolescent medicine is just a division of two plus a part-time nurse practitioner who just joined us. So we don't have our own, we don't do inpatient consultations or have our own service, unfortunately. Um, right now, these kinds of patients would probably get admitted to the hospital medicine pediatricians um, with consultation from hematology. And they often call gynecology because even though we don't have internal gynecology at Connecticut Children's, they're available from Hartford Hospital. And so they have that relationship and they will consult. Um, but we are also always a phone call away. So some, you know, sometimes Amanda has had a patient admitted from her clinic and she's like, just tell me what to do. And it's it's a phone call, you know, consult. It's not like we need to physically go and see the patient. So that's that's easy for us to help out with as well. Okay, thank you. Uh, from, from Rebecca Moles, thank you for this collaborative presentation. Uh, for your case at the end or in general, when do you recommend pregnancy testing as part of the initial evaluation? That was a great question and probably should, should have definitely been included in that slide, especially coming from me because we are getting an HCG on everybody that walks into our clinic in adolescent medicine. Um, so I would have assumed that that was there. Um, but basically, yes, that's a quick and easy test to get with a urine specimen easily in your office. So always, always rule that out. Even if you talk to the individual patient alone and they decline that they've ever had sexual history, it's a good idea to rule it out because I've been lied to before by patients and that's an unhappy surprise. So you want to definitely rule that out as a possibility as well, because that would certainly change management. Thank you for that question. Uh, for, 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 for both of you, for Melissa Santos, great presentation. Thank you. Can you speak to whether depression and or obesity would impact treatment decision-making? Um, so for hormonal management, um, there's been some um, evidence that a small percentage of individuals can have some mood changes. Um, but that's again, a benefits versus risks thing. And so if, if that's a, I don't usually counsel about that directly, but if the patient specifically brings it up, um, then I will you know, say, we'll just monitor, right? So we'll mo you wanna monitor your symptoms, you wanna monitor your mood. Certainly the bleeding in and of itself could cause depression, right? If they're missing out on life events. So again, it's a quality of life issue for many individuals and you wanna tackle that head on and not, not let that be the case that they're so miserable during their periods. Um, some women do have you know, features of PMS and there's actually a diagnosis called PMDD or premenstrual dysphoric disorder where they can have mood changes um, that are extreme accompanied by other symptoms before the onset of their um, menses. And that's a different, you know, diagnosis, but sometimes similar management where we talk about hormonal therapy plus minus an SSRI. Um, did you have anything to comment about that? In between? Um, yeah. Um, so in terms of um, the medications that we use in hematology, um, none of those medications are really affected by obesity. There's no dosage changes. Um, or anything um, like that. In terms of depression for patients who are on um, an SSRI and there's some thought as to whether or not that's actually causing some platelet dysfunction, um, we always weigh the risk benefit. Um, and oftentimes the benefit of the SSRI um, and helping to control the depression um, much outweighs maybe some extra bruising or bleeding um, that we may see because of it. Um, so it's not a, a major concern to us um, in hematology. Great. Um, then, oh, sorry. Just to quickly comment on the question about obesity relating to hormonal contraceptives. Um, so, you know, if someone has features of PCOS and it's accompanied by obesity, we're going to manage that accordingly, like we would ordinarily manage PCOS with hormonal treatment. Um, there's been some evidence that suggests that certain types of contraceptives may not be as affected in someone that has severe obesity, particularly the birth control patch. Um, but again, if that that's more for a contraception issue. Um, so, if but if that patient is really um, interested in that method, 
I don't really worry about that risk too much. It hasn't been super substantiated in studies. Um, and then some people um, probably already know this, but Depo-Provera, as I had highlighted on one of the slides, it is known to have a side effect of weight gain. Um, so if that is a concern for the patient, that would not be a preferred method. Um, the other ones have not um, shown that in studies. One last question, then we have others that we'll have to answer online uh, from Dr. Skirk. As you mentioned, weigh-in pads for admitted patients. What is normal flow and how much is too much? So the total amount of flow for a normal menstrual cycle should be no more than 40 milliliters. Um, however, if they're admitted, obviously they're going to have way more than that. Um, so really the benefit of tracking pads would just to make sure that your treatment is working. It's not like you're looking for some golden number. It would just to make sure, be making sure that, you know, once you start the pills or if you're doing IV Premarin, that it's substantially, substantially reducing as you continue your treatment. So it's really just a way to track and um, track your flow. That's great. So uh, Jessica and Amanda, thank you very much. And also Dr. Bennett for having uh, just a superb and outstanding Division of Adolescent Medicine and for the our Bleeding Disorder Center and everything that's done there. It's just great. This just showcases uh, the wonders that happen here at Connecticut Children's with great people, great teams. So proud of all of you. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, have a great day. Please go vote if you haven't. Um, and then we'll connect again on Friday for the uh, typical Ask the Experts session. Take care. Bye-bye.